Hello and welcome to the Test Tube Podcast. I'm your host, Dan. Hey yo, my name is Eric. We are representing X39 Gem, the biggest synthetic biology competition in the world. We are here to interview fantastic researchers and demystify the world of synthetic biology. Let's get right into it. Welcome to Test 2 Podcast. Today we have the lovely iGem Sheffield on with us, so if you both would like to introduce yourselves. I just waved at the camera as if the podcast can see us, but hello, I'm Isaac. Uh, and hello, I'm Brooks. You also just waved. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a day. Brilliant. So if you just want to get straight into it and give us a, an overview of your project. So we're doing a project which involves something called in vivo directed evolution. And we are optimizing a bunch of genetic parts using this funky new organism called Vibrio Natrigens. And we're going to make a system where you can basically evolve any protein you want automatically in a bioreactor within these cells. Because you're also talking about the evolutionary aspects of your project. Could you give us a quick overview about that? When we were designing a project, we stumbled across this field of directed evolution, which is something that people have used in the lab for ages to you know, sequentially improve proteins, much like proteins and genes themselves have improved over natural evolution, of course. As you know, it's the same thing. You have variations caused by usually mutation in the population. So different bits of the code are slightly different that make the proteins act slightly differently. And then a certain set of those differences may be particularly advantageous or they'll be selected for. And uh, I guess that's the, the crux really is that evolution has the two parts, the mutation and the selection. And what sets our project apart from many of the existing directed evolution efforts is that kind of recently it's become more possible to do these things in vivo, so in living cells, and then on top of that, the extra little adjectives you can toss in for continuous in vivo directed evolution. The continuous part there means that the whole system can operate, generate the mutations and select for them independent of a scientist needing to be involved. Perfect. It would probably be really useful, actually, for our audience if you could go through and just quickly give an overview of what mutation is, both on just like a sort of whole organism level, as well as more mm -hmm. on a molecular I, I always think it's an interesting word because people associate the word mutation with something quite sinister. And but well, mutation is essential to to the development of life, and all it means is that every every machine in our body and in any organism, most of them are made of proteins, and those proteins are encoded in DNA. I think you've talked about DNA a bunch on on your podcast before, but DNA obviously a code consisting of four letters, and every three of those letters codes for a little building block of these machines that perform a particular function. And if you change one of those letters, you may change the building block in a certain way. And because all of those building blocks of those machines have kind of unique chemical properties, you can start to change the function of the protein slightly or alter it. Maybe that makes it better which means the protein is improved, or perhaps it makes it not good at its job at all. In that case, then the protein uh, wouldn't be able to work and likely would be selected against. So all the mutation is, is it's just a change in the underlying code of the machines that run life, I guess. Brilliant. So this change in the base code is what we would describe as variation. And most people have heard of the concept of natural selection. Variation is basically the crux of what makes natural selection work you've got loads and loads of different variants and the variant that is the fittest or the most successful at replicating will 
increase in a population and that's what we would call natural selection so for your project are you directing your mutation for a specific protein so that a big part of our project originally was we wanted to make the whole thing modular so our aim was to basically make these plasmids modular in a way that people can get them get hold of them and then clone their own gene in and clone their own kind of selection mechanism in and then you know we've optimized the parts to work with any gene but in terms of a specific gene we're going to hopefully do a few proof of concept things if we get time with a bacterial lactosynthase gene originally that that was that was just born out of the fact that there's no vegan way to make lactose currently it all uses uh, animal products and i think one, one of the members on our team is a huge fan of milk stout beer um <laughs> typical us northerners we wanted to try and find a way to get a a single gene that synthesizes lactose into like the the yeast that would make beer so to do that we found a single gene that makes lactose from a bacteria do you remember the name of the species Nasseria, is it yes i think it's a meningitis bacteria it is a meningitis bacteria but you know we'll see how that goes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we, we basically we, we found the gene for that and we're going to try and optimize that because that gene currently makes lactose but also makes a few other sugars as side products so as a proof of concept for our directed evolution system we're going to try and optimize it to just make lactose yeah. so i mean last week we spoke to vienna who are making bricks you guys are making beer our projects oh god we chose the wrong thing here <laughs> <laughs> what would be really cool is if you guys could explain the mechanism by which you're forcing these mutations. Two systems that we're going to try and use. Uh, the first one is uh, called Muta T7. It uses something called a T7 polymerase, an RNA polymerase, and that's the enzyme that reads DNA and makes the mRNA code, which then gets translated to the proteins. The reason that you can sp you specifically use this T7 one, uh, which is originally co-opted from a bacteriophage um, a virus, the promoters that uh, you use for your gene that you're going to mutate will be specific to that T7 polymerase. And so then when you, you know, you throw your gene in with your bacteria and this and, and the polymerase that they express, the um, mutating T7 polymerase, which we'll explain how that works in a second, will only target your gene of interest. So that's the first thing. You've got a gene with promoters that only respond to T7 polymerase. And then the second part, is that the T7 polymerase is fused to another enzyme, uh, a base deaminase, uh, which basically rips a bit of chemistry, um, a bit of chemistry, that's fake, isn't it? It rips a, a, a few atoms off of one of the bases, the, you know, the, the building blocks of the DNA, um, and changes them, uh, i.e. mutating them, so that as this polymerase is reading the DNA code, it will make point mutations along the way. Pairing that with the fact that the polymerase you're using is specific, you've got a specific hypermutation system for your gene of interest. So that's how we're going to, that's one way that we're going to generate some mutations. Uh, that's better characterized than the bizarre one that Brooks is going to about. <laughs> We've kind of found this cool technology called HiScribe. It works by repurposing a bacterial retron, which is another fancy sounding word. But basically, all that is, is it's a bit of DNA. Uh, that gets transcribed, turned into RNA, but it folds into this kind of weird structure. So it folds back on itself and forms some unique recognition site. And then some reverse transcriptase can come along and turn parts of that RNA back into a single stranded piece of DNA. Um, so we're thinking about ways to uh, increase the mutation rate there. In a paper, we've seen people also using these same base editors, but connecting those perhaps 
to this reverse transcriptase, so doing that editing there. Essentially, the advantage of this slightly more complex system where you're turning DNA into RNA, into single-stranded DNA, then putting it back in the genome, is you can target any region where you can design the homology for. So you don't need to have promoters present, you can target any arbitrary sequence. So you can mutate a wider range of genomic loci. I can think of one question that's probably the most sort of important for this, is these sequences that are being mutated, they will constantly mutate. It's continuous mutation, as you said. How can you prevent this mutation happening? Or how can you, if you're optimizing a sequence, how can you ensure it's being optimized? We need to use natural selection. So these mutations will need to provide a survival or a fitness benefit. So a lot of these sequences hopefully will, but how can you ensure that you are optimizing them? This was a a long discussion that we had at the beginning, because this is the the crux, is the thing to make directed evolution in vivo, i.e. in an organism working, is you need to somehow program the bacteria to grow faster when your gene or whatever you're mutating is getting better in your eyes. There's a couple of ways to do this. You could positively select, i.e. the ones that have a better gene will gain an ability. One example, if I use the example of optimizing lactosynthase, our our lactosynthase gene is being mutated and, and as that's happening, it's producing either not a lot of lactose or some lactose or a lot of lactose as it gets better or, you know, So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have, we have our mutation kind of bit of our plasmid where our gene of interest is being constantly hypermutated. And on the other end of the plasmid, we're still working out the exact, like on which plasmids they're going, but on, you know, somewhere else on another plasmid or on the same plasmid, you're going to have a uh, a gene that um, is able to metabolize a different sugar source Uh, we've chosen sorbitol, a secondary sugar source, so that when these bacteria are growing, if they're expressing, oh, sorry, and I should say the the sorbitol metabolism gene will be under the influence of promoter that responds to lactose itself, the lac promoter. And all that basically means is that the gene for metabolizing our extra yummy sorbitol is only switched on when there's more lactose present. And that will only happen when our mutating gene gets better. So as the gene gets better, it makes more lactose, which means it's able to switch on the secondary metabolism source for sorbitol, which means those bacteria will not only be able to metabolize the glucose we give them, but also the sorbitol we give them, and they will outcompete the ones that can't metabolize the second sugar. Therefore, they'll grow faster and the ones that gain better mutations for making lactose will outcompete those. And after a week, hopefully our lactosynthase gene has, has got pretty hench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the second approach to this, because the potential limitation of using like this, this very traditional uh, biosensor regulates promoter module um, is that sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to connect those two. So I guess in this case, the lack of promoter is very well characterized. An alternative to that then is to use some growth slowing genes, which slows the whole rate of growth of the cell. It slows everything down a bit to a crawl. So using this, you know, way to tune fitness, the idea here is that instead of turning on this gene, uh, speeding up growth, like it does with, you know, the 
sorbitol breaking down gene, the sorbitol dehydrogenase. What we would have here is a constitutive promoter that expresses this growth slowing gene. So their growth is stuck at a bit of a slow rate for a while. But in front of this gene, we found a riboregulator, so a piece of RNA. And this piece of RNA normally forms some weird stem loops, so some like secondary structure folds back on itself uh, in a way that will stop transcription of the gene downstream when another piece of RNA binds to it. And that triggers, so say more lactose, triggers the transcription of more of this regulatory RNA. That regulatory RNA binds to the RNA region upstream of this growth slowing gene. And then that changes its structure so that it is no longer transcribed or no longer um, translated. Instead of turning on the gene when you're detecting lactose, you're turning off a growth slowing gene when you detect lactose. But how are you finding um, organizing your team and putting them into like a wiki, uh, graphic design, social media, lab? How's that working for you? By far harder than any yeah. of the bioscience. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're, I, think, I think we're getting there. Um, we've had a team that's been a bit hard to pin down because the, the pace of things has been quite quick over the summer in terms of developments and how, you know, little bits of direction change. Sometimes when people miss a day or, you know, a few days, it's, we have to catch them back up. But I think we've been, we've been getting, we've been getting better at it. We even got a mathematician. Oh, oh yeah. That's actually been very helpful. Um, to him, it makes sense. To me, it looks like black magic, but. We have similar, one of our teammates, uh, he's a natural scientist. So he works with math stuff. Yeah. Mm. And he's made this amazing model that we now use and we're looking at the model and he's going, yes, this is very simple. Here's how it goes. This, this, this. <laughs> we go, yes. Oh, yes, yeah. There's, yeah. Numbers. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. there's a letter there. He <laughs> <laughs> did like pages of modeling in just a, just a few days. Yeah, it was, it was quite scary. Yeah. It was kind of like watching a man descend into madness and then pull out <laughs> this, this brilliant model. Yeah, yeah, that does know. seem the theme, doesn't it, with iGEM? Just watching us all descend into madness. And then pull out with something brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> we had a request from our Instagram asking if we could talk about the day in the life of a, the average research scientist. And I think both of you would be brilliant to go into telling us what your average day as research scientist is? Well, it always starts off with some kind of existential crisis. <laughs> I think I've been maybe, what, half eight to like 9.15? Yeah, I usually book in at least 45 minutes yeah, for the yeah, crisis. Yeah. And how much coffee do you have in the morning? I've had to stop <laughs> drinking coffee now. That's, that's a whole other podcast. We, uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a daily question with, with ours, which is everyone walks in and Eric comes and we go, Eric, you got your coffee? Yeah. <laughs> no, not today. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just walk off and I just, and they're like, oh, he's got to get coffee. <laughs> they just know. Um, so we have our, Eric's essential crisis in our coffee. What happens? Yeah. We, we had this question when we went, did outreach as well. It seems like people don't really know what scientists actually do all day. Yeah. What do you mean? We stand about in white coats and tap a clipboard. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I mean, the, the day in the life for us at the moment has been it's the strangest combination of being super organized and planned but also planning for all of your plans to completely go wrong it's balancing those you you have to have a, a, a certain or you have to at least develop a certain sense of stability yeah <laughs> i think and there's a, a bit of a tricky balance as well because the most common i feel like one of the things that people forget about is a vital part of research particularly when they're you know imagining lab coats and tapping clipboards is the reading that goes into it and actually catching up with the work that other people have done because research is obviously a very collaborative endeavor so you know often at the start of a project when you're researching something you'll spend a lot of time 
reading about something and making plans before you even start in the lab. But something that I have kind of come to learn is a really critical skill is knowing how to balance that reading, that research, that exploration of the literature with actually starting and running experiments of your own. Um, it's hard to know when you should just keep reading about something and when it's worth setting up an experiment yourself and just getting into the lab. And of course, the flip side of that is once you do find something cool in the lab, write it down. Yeah, write it down and yeah. communicate it clearly with you know everyone else. So you're giving back to that uh, community of knowledge. And uh, keep in mind that that community of knowledge is something that you yourself will almost certainly need in a few weeks uh, when you're trying to think back to, oh, well, what did I do this day? Or this worked really well. How much mm -hmm. of this did I add to this flask? <laughs> yeah. um, so it was, yeah. uh, we have, we would completely agree. Earlier today, we were sat up in the uh, the breakout room of our lab and uh, we have Ollie and Prina who are working on, they're working on some great stuff, but they're, they're working through and Prina said something very calmly, Oli goes, write it down, quick, quick, this is great, this is gold. Yeah, anything you say, you've got to write it down. Even if it's just like a quick idea and you try it, you've got to write it down. Because mm -hmm. who knows, that little idea might grow away more, who knows? Yeah, it's exactly. Like, definitely agree with the day of a life of a research scientist is mostly planning things that are going to go wrong. Yeah. So you have to make more plans <laughs> yeah. and you make those plans by reading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. That should be on like the job description. Yeah. <laughs> but in case, you know, that job description does sound too grim. I also think it's worth pointing out that at least the reason I think research is so cool um, is at least at this level, once you're in university, it's almost startling how quickly you bump up against the boundaries of like all human knowledge, because at this level, almost somewhat easy to try something that somebody has never tried before, which is quite an exciting feeling to know that, oh, we're entering the unknown now, and what we're essentially doing is trying to draw a nice map of the landscape that we can pass on to everyone who wants to walk these trails behind us. So there That's we are. There's a nice such poetic a beautifully thing. Yeah. metaphor. That's really good. <laughs> but um, you know, it's been it's been absolutely lovely speaking to you guys. You and too, to yeah. to any listeners, go and check out iGem Sheffield. If you're listening on YouTube, we'll put all their socials and their wiki in the description. These guys are absolutely charming. Go and check them out. Oh, how sweet. You I guess we'll have you, to send you all you, that you, you guys are charming. Oh, no. so wholesome. <laughs> yeah, the wholesomeness comes at the end of the podcast. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We'll nice. always listen Don't to Don't worry. We'll, we'll end the recording now and just be horrible to each other. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. That's all we have time for today. As always, thanks to our wonderful guests. And please feel free to follow us on Instagram at exeter.igem2022, on YouTube at exeter.igem2022, or pop us an email on exeter.igem2022 at gmail.com. Please ask any questions via the social media or in the comments, and any other feedback is greatly appreciated. Bye for now!